I want you to think of yourself as pirates. Okay, I knew that was going to happen. It was, it's a mistake already. So, I need to get you guys a microphone. The jokes are coming. All right, so listen. You're, you're pirates, and you are searching for the world's greatest treasure. And along the way, there are these coins that you find. And every time you find a coin, it's proof that there really is this great treasure. And along the way, you've got this map. And this map is getting you to the treasure. But to get to that treasure, you've got to have this special lens to look through in order to read the map. And what good is it, by the way, if you've got this special lens that helps you read the map that gets you to the treasure, if you don't have the key to open up the treasure box? And this great treasure, this great treasure that we're talking about, is an etern- a treasure that will give you an eternal joy, an eternal happiness, this unrelenting satisfaction and contentment. And it's coming for you and it's coming after you. This treasure is once you have it. And when it's opened, it's going to open up your heart to new beauties that you have never seen. And it's going to open up you to a world that was once unseen that is now seen. And this treasure, it's the goal of all humanity And it's the goal for you in your life, whether you realize it or not, you are chasing after it. And so today, what I want to do is I want to prove to you that there is a great treasure, and I want to help you find it. And by the way, this great treasure is Jesus Christ. He is the great treasure, and he is the treasure because when we have him, we have everything. So we're in John 10, and we're going to read verses 30 through 42. So here you go. It starts like this. Jesus says a line, and then, then, it, then it, here, you just listen. So John 10, 30 through 32, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Then the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which one of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered answered him. It's not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law, I said you are gods, if he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God. I am not doing the, I am doing, if I am not doing the works of my Father, then don't believe me. But if I do them, even if you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. Now, here's their situation. The religious leaders of the day, of that day, are trying to stone Jesus. They're trying to kill him. And they're trying to kill him for him making himself out to be God. And so he says to them, for what works are you going to stone me? 
what, what do you do? Why, why are you going to kill me? For what works am I doing? And they say, it's not for the works that you're doing, for what, but for you making yourself out to be God. Now, what's interesting is that a chapter earlier, the, the religious leaders were trying to kill him because he healed somebody. They're trying to kill him because of his works. But now it's because of what he is saying. And look how Jesus responds. He responds to them with logic. And he says, why... Why don't you stop reacting emotionally to my claims and weigh the evidence? He's making a logical case to them that he is the son of God. And he understands that this sounds crazy to them. And he's saying, come on, think about it. Look, you've got to weigh the evidence. I know that this sounds crazy, but you've got to stop. Here's what he's saying. You've got to stop bringing your, listen, you've got to stop bringing your preconceived opinions about who I am and look at my works. He's saying, saying my works are like gold. They are coins that are pointing to this great treasure. And he's exposing something about the religious leaders. He's exposing the reason that they don't believe. And the reason that they don't believe in him is because they already, before they even heard anything he said, they don't want to believe in him. And we see this in politics. If there's a candidate that you like, you find the good in them. And if there's a candidate that you don't like, you find all the bad in them. You find the good and bad in people based on how you already feel about them. And Jesus is saying, stop deciding what you feel about me before you have even weighed the evidence about me. A few months ago, what we did is we looked at his work specifically. We looked at his miracles. We looked at the things he was doing. And we're going to do that today, but we're going to look at his works more broadly. And many of you here, you want evidence that Jesus really is the Son of God. You need to see it to believe it, and you want to know it with your senses. And Jesus knows that. And so what he does to the people is he says, look at my works. Now, the problem that you have is that you weren't there. So you didn't get to see it. So you've got to rely on what the Bible is saying here. However, there is still evidence that you can't experience now. And so that's what I want to do. I want to take, those, take you through some of those coins, some of the evidence. But before I do, first I got to say this. In the New Testament, it is very clear that the writers believed Jesus was God. In Colossians 1.16, it says, By Jesus, everything was created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. And then it says, In him, all things hold together. He's holding absolutely everything together. The chair that you're sitting in, the reason it has not fallen out from underneath you is because Jesus is holding it together. Now, be careful what I'm saying here, but he's holding all things together. And what I want to show you is that he is doing that. And I want you to look at these things, not with a doubt, but with an open-mindedness that Jesus is actively and caringly holding everything together. He's involved with creation. Okay, so don't be closed-minded here. So often what happens is you'll see people, they'll pit science 
and Christianity against each other. And they'll say, well, I'm a, I'm a person of science, so I can't believe that Christianity is true. And I can't believe, I can't believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I can't believe it because of what I believe about science. Now, I want you to see, I want you to see this. Do you realize that Christianity laid, Christianity is what laid the philosophical foundation for the rise of science as we know it today? Science is the way that it is today because of the philosophy of Christianity. And the, a philosopher named Ludwig Wittgenstein, and you're going to have to concentrate here, you ready? Says, the law of nature, the laws of nature describe the universe, but explain nothing. Now, let me show you what he means by this. So science tells us that you can't create or destroy matter and energy. It can't be created and it can't be destroyed. However, science also says that there was no matter and energy, and then there all of a sudden was matter and energy. That's the, ther- the law of thermodynamics says that can't happen, and yet it has happened. That's why we're here. So this is proving, this is proving that science can't explain creation. It can only describe it. It can explain it. It can't explain it. It can only describe it. Now, what I want you to see here is that our existence, you sitting here right now, is statistically and scientifically impossible. Odds are against us being here right now and even going on. And so we're, I'm going to look at the coins that are showing that. So here's the first coin. Okay, here's the evidence. Big, broad works of Jesus. First coin is the size of our earth. So the size of a planet determines its gravitational pull. And so if our planet was a little bit bigger, then the gravity would pull methane and pneumonia down too low to the surface of the earth and we would not be able to survive. Now, if the planet was a little bit smaller, the gravitation would be less. And so then here's what happened. The the water vapors would dissipate out into the atmosphere, not allowing us to survive. Okay, that's the first sign. And by the way, there's tons of signs. I'm just looking at four real quick. Second is the speed our planet rotates. So if the planet rotated a little bit faster, the speed, no, you know, let's start with too slow or slower. If the earth rotated slower, our days would be too long and our nights would be too long. And what would happen is the temperatures would become too extreme for us to survive here. If the, if the earth rotated faster, then the winds would be too fast for us to survive. For, so, for example, on Jupiter, the wind speeds often are up to 1,000 miles an hour. And then while we're looking at Jupiter, this is the third thing, we could not be here if it was not for Jupiter. It's, in a sense, our rescuer. And so here's what Jupiter's doing. Because of its size and gravity, there are comets that should have crushed us by now. But Jupiter is pulling those comets away from us and throwing them out of our atmosphere so that they don't destroy the Earth. And then the fourth thing is our moon. And our moon is very unique from all other moons. And, and so one thing it does is it causes the tides. And if the moon were a little bit bigger, then coastal cities would not exist because the tides would be too great. 
if the moon were a little bit smaller, then the tides wouldn't be enough and all the life in the ocean, because, because it's replenishing the nutrients, the tides are, it, they wouldn't be enough, and so the life in the ocean would not be there. Now, oh, in this, by the way, this is proving that we have a God who enjoys beauty and enjoys creating things that are beautiful. He's an artist. Listen, the moon, we just had the eclipse, right? The earth... I mean, the moon and the sun appear to us to be the exact same size because of the distance from the moon to the sun and the earth. It appears that they're exact same size. That's allowing us to actually see a total eclipse. I mean, this is the, this is the masterful masterpiece of God, his artistry, where he is creating beauty and allowing us to see a total eclipse because it's, we're the right distance away from the, the moon and the sun. Now, if you aren't convinced of the need for God to hold everything together and for a God to create. I want to show you something. I want to show you the odds. So an astrophysicist, Hugh Ross, he says, here are the odds of us. He says, if you took dimes, you spread these dimes all around North America, and you took one of those dimes and you marked it red, the odds of someone finding that red dime blindfolded, is virtually impossible. But he said, but that's not the odds of us. It's far worse. He says, what you'd have to do is take all of the dimes and stack them up all the way up to the moon. And he says, still, that person finding that one red dime, our odds are even worse. He said, here's what you have to do. You'd have to stack dimes up to the moon a billion times. And the odds of someone that's blindfolded Finding that red coin is the odds of us. I mean, it seems to me that it takes a lot more faith to believe that there isn't a God than that there is one. Now, here's what Jesus is doing. He's saying, all my works, all my miracles, they are proof that I'm the God of creation. He says, I can control energy and matter because I created energy and matter. That's what he's claiming. That's why he's saying, look at my works. The only logical conclusion here is either that Jesus is telling the truth about himself because his works are proving it, or the disciples created some hoax, 11 of them made up this hoax. They managed to trick 500 people into believing that they saw Jesus alive and named them in the Bible while those people were still alive. And so if you were there, you could go and talk to those people and say, hey, did you see Jesus? And they said, yeah, it's crazy. I saw him. He's risen from the dead. I mean, that's why they put their names in the Bible and did all of that. And then, by the way, all 11 of those disciples, besides one, gave up their life for this hoax. That's what had been what happened. I mean, that's about, I'm not a mathematician, but the odds sound about the same as finding that red coin. I think, I mean, the evidence is there. Our real problem is that we have a heart problem. You do, I do, we are cynical about what we hope in. 
and we're distracted. We become so distracted by the things of this world, taking our attention away from God. We got our jobs, we got our families, and these are all good things, but they're distracting us at the same time. I'm not saying we need to get rid of our families and our houses and any of that stuff, but listen, we got to focus in on the creator God. We've got, we've got, we're worried about our careers. We're worried about retirement. We're worried about finding the right amount of income, the right house, caring for everything. All the while, this is distracting us from the God who created us, loves us, and didn't just create us because he was lonely and he was bored, but created out of an overflowing love and joy and wants to share it all with you. All right. So those are the coins that prove that there really is a treasure. But the coins don't actually bring us to the treasure. I saw Eric drinking, so I needed to have some. Um, so there's this treasure, these coins that are proving the treasure, but we need a map that's going to bring us to this great treasure. And, and, and you got to understand this. If God really was God and he wanted to communicate to us, wouldn't he need a way so that we might be able to know him? So we need a map, and Scripture is the map that brings us to know God, our treasure. You know, many people, many people will say this about Jesus. Almost everyone says this about Jesus. He's a great teacher. He's a good man. Probably one of the greatest men to have ever lived. And I mean, by the way, it is true. If you, look, if you live the way Jesus tells you to live, if a society adopts that way of living, it will be the most flourishing society. It produces more flourishing than any other religion. But, but listen, listen. Logically speaking, if he really is such a great teacher, you'd want to live the way he's living and learn to live the way he's living. Now, now look, you've got to see what, how Jesus te- treats the scriptures. If he's this great teacher, let's see how he teaches. Let's see how he treats the scriptures. Here's what he says. Scripture can't be broken. What he's saying is it's truth. It's complete truth. It's where you go to find truth. He's saying that there's nothing about it that is false. It holds truth. Not partial truths, but the greatest truth. I mean, okay, so listen. If scripture is a map, or just take a map, and if, if a map is only mostly right, but there's a few things wrong, then it's going to lead you away. It's going to lead you away from the treasure, and you're never going to find it. You're going to go off course. So the map can't be wrong, or else you'll never find the treasure. What Jesus is saying is that if you don't adopt Scripture fully, you're going to miss the treasure. Now, listen, I am not saying that the church hasn't failed over and over again, not our church, we're perfect, but every other church, no, I'm just kidding, but the church in general has failed in interpreting scripture and has failed in living the way that scripture has called us to live, but that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about how does Jesus, who is called by, by almost everyone, one of the greatest men who ever lived, how does he treat scripture? How does he approach it? He says it can't be broken. I mean, if you really believe Jesus is such a great man, this great teacher, then why not approach the Bible the way he does? 
I think if he really is this great teacher, you have to take seriously his view of the scriptures. And I know many of you here, you're like, you're on board with me here. You're tracking here. You're like, yes, I believe that that's true. I believe that scripture is truth. But listen, are you clinging to scripture like it is the map that's leading you to the greatest treasure you will ever know? Are you grasping it? Are you going to it that way? You aren't. You aren't. And I'm not doing it either. I mean, we have such a great treasure in this scripture because it's leading us right to the treasure. And some of you, you got some really dusty Bibles. I mean, I mean, you could go to your Bible and you could probably draw your name on it because of all the dust that's on there. And if you've got a Bible app, you know, you couldn't find any fingerprints above the Bible app on your phone. Um, thank you for laughing, the two of you. Thank you for that. Um, <laughs> Listen, the way, the way that Jesus talks about the Bible makes very clear that his view of the Bible is that if you want to discover God, you've got to get in his word. And if you want to make a decision about if Jesus really is the son of God, you've got to get in his word. And some of you, you're mad at God because he's been silent in your life. And a lot of times people will come to me and they'll say, hey, David, I'm not really getting a sense of God. I'm not really experiencing his presence, and it hasn't happened in a long time, or maybe it's never happened. And, and, and people come to me for help with this, and one of the first things I ask is, how much have you been in the Word? And almost always, the answer is, I could draw my name on my Bible. There's so much dust on there. You know, so you can't know God and experience him unless you're getting in his Word. And, it, and not, not like you were meant to, at least. Maybe you are experiencing God outside of his word, but I, here's what I would say. If you go to his word, you're going to experience him a thousand times more. Now, some of you have read the Bible, and you haven't found God in the Bible. And I would ask, have you read it in a community of people, the church, who are pointing each other to the truth of the scriptures because that's how it's meant to be read. It's meant to be read together, not in isolation. Some of you, though, and I'm this way sometimes too, you don't want to read it because you know in there you're going to find things where God is telling you to live in a different way and you don't want to change the way you're living. But that, if that's the case, you're running from the thing that will bring you to meet him. You're, you're frustrated that you aren't meeting God, but you won't go to the scriptures. Listen, you won't go to the scriptures like clay. The scripture is meant to mold you. God is the molder and we are the clay, but here's what we're doing. We're going to scripture like we're the molder and we're trying to mold scripture. And we're trying to make scripture out to be the clay. Scripture is meant to mold us but we're going to it to mold it. Listen, you, you are testing the Bible instead of letting the Bible test you. And we do this all the time. I do this. But when I do that, I'm not treating the Bible the way it was meant to be treated. You can't read it like that. That's the same thing as taking a map with a pen in your hand and saying, ah, oh, I don't like that. I'm gonna change this up a little bit. Well, you're never gonna get to where the map is meant to take you because you're changing what the map is saying. 
You aren't letting the map do its job. And if you're treating Scripture that way, you're not letting Scripture do its job. What I found is that if you treat Scripture like it isn't true, you're going to find things in it that you say, see, I knew it was wrong. It's the same as like taking a map. You take the map, and you don't believe the map is true. And so you've got this map in your hand, and the map says, there's a waterfall right in front of you. You've got to go through the waterfall. And you say, see, I knew it. I knew the map was wrong. Everybody knows that there's rock on the other side of the waterfall. Everyone knows there's a mountain on the other side of the waterfall. But if you would have listened to the map, you would have found that there's this hole in the mountain. It's this cave. And if you follow this secret path, it's going to take you to the other side all the way through the cave. And you're going to arrive at this beautiful beach, this paradise that's there for you. Because you listen to what the map has said. There's so many, there's so many secret paths in scripture that are bringing you to your great treasure. If you will just go and, and just let it be what it's supposed to be for you, let scripture be scripture for you, you're going to experience so much more joy in your life because you've got the treasure right there. It's bringing you to it. I, I want to encourage us to be a church that is diving in the scriptures that's in it, that's wrestling with it. And even if you're skeptical of what I've said, there's enough evidence that you ought to still pour your thoughts into it and read it. There's too much at stake to let it collect dust. And if you'll open it and let it test you instead of you testing it, you'll find that it starts removing cobwebs in your heart that you didn't know were there. And you'll find that you're starting to discover God in ways that you didn't know that you could. And you'll find that scripture is the knife that is cutting through all of these cobwebs, allowing you to experience God, your great treasure. But here's the thing about the map. And many of you don't know this. The map requires a special lens to read and understand, or else you'll miss it. You won't have the clarity needed to understand what the Bible's saying. The Bible cannot be understood unless you are reading it through this lens, or else you're going to miss almost all of what the Bible is saying. Some of you are reading the Bible without the lens, and you're wondering why you're not finding God, and this is the exact reason why. So this special lens to read the Bible with is called the gospel, the good news. The, the word gospel literally means good news. It means joyful news. It means if you are hearing this and this doesn't sound like the greatest news you've ever heard in your life, then you have likely misunderstood what the gospel is saying. So here's the gospel lens. Here's the gospel story. God comes into the world and he comes in and he lives this perfect life, this beautiful life, the life that we were meant to live. And then there's this cross and that cross is meant for you. That cross is meant for the wrath of God to be poured down upon you on it while you are on this cross. But here's what happens. Jesus goes there in your place and he absorbs it all. 
And then it's not only that, he then says, here, here's my perfect life. Here is my identity. It's placed upon you. It's yours. And then here's what that means. We are perfectly right in the eyes of God. There's nothing wrong with us. There's no blemish. We are looked at and loved by the Father as much as the Father looks at and loves the Son, Jesus Christ. No more and no less, just as much. And we're seen as perfect sons and daughters of God. He has given us a brand new record, but it doesn't end there. He then rises from the grave, and then here's what that means for you. You're given a whole new heart. You are changed. Your identity is completely new, and he has promised you the world and the life that you are made for. You don't have it yet, but it's coming for you, and it's going to come to you one day. And it's not yet here, but it is coming. And many of you have been reading the Bible without that lens. Everything should be filtered through that. Everything that you read should be filtered through that, or else you're reading it wrong. And we see even with the disciples, the Old Testament made no sense to them until they read it through the gospel message, and then everything was like, oh yeah, you remember this? This was pointing to Jesus. You remember this? This was pointing to Jesus. We had no idea. Look, it's all right here. This is amazing. And by the way, Jesus dying without rising makes no sense at all. If he's just dying for the forgiveness of our sins, what good is being dead forever if you're forgiven? I mean, what good is being forgiven if you're dead forever? It doesn't. It doesn't matter. And so we, here, here's what's happening. Many of you here, you're reading the Bible like a list of rules to follow. When it's a story, it's this grand narrative of God coming to rescue you and this world and rescue a community of people that is called the church. And see, the Bible is meant to mold you. And if you, will, if you will read it through that lens, it will do just that. But still, you got the lens, you've got the map, it's bringing you right to the treasure box, but here's the problem. The treasure box is not opening up because you don't have the key. And there's nothing more frustrating than standing before the greatest treasure in all the world, not being able to get into it, knowing what's inside and not getting it. So what is this key? What's the key that opens it up? It's simple. The key is faith, but it's faith specifically in Jesus and his grand rescue project of us. We read it at the end of the text that many believed in him. Not in themselves to get there, but they believed in him. Not in themselves to open the treasure, but in him. And the problem is that the box will not open up unless you have faith in this gospel message. You're standing before this treasure box and you're watching everybody enjoy it. And you're like, why am I missing it? Why aren't I getting it? What's going on here? You're trying so hard to experience him. You're trying so hard when all you've got to do is turn the key. I know. That's what I'm saying, Joe. One day you're going to come up here with me, man, and you're going to... Okay, listen. Some of you, you've been standing in front of that box for a long time, and you think you're a Christian, but you've never seen the box open. Because you're trying to open it. 
yourself. You're not using the key. So what does that look like? I mean, what does it look like to try to open this box without the key? It looks like putting your faith in yourself. And this is so common. This is such a great mistake that, that happens in churches all of the time. I, let's refuse to let that happen in here. Okay, let's refuse to let that happen in the grove. So, so you're trying to open it on your own. It's putting faith in yourself, in your own goodness to open what's up in the box. You've got to rack up enough points so that magically, boop, it just opens up. See, you still think Christianity is about good people going to heaven. But that's not what it's about. It's about pirates. It's about people who don't deserve the treasure getting it anyways. See, pirates steal. And it would seem as if we have stolen heaven. We've snuck our way in. But what the Christian comes to understand is that this great treasure is not earned and it is not stolen. It is given as a gift. But you've got to be willing to take the gift. You've got to be willing to stop trying to earn it. You see, you aren't actually the real pirate. God is the real pirate. And he has robbed the grave and he has stolen you out of hell and stolen you out of the grip of hell and he's brought you into the treasures of heaven. And one day there's going to come a day where he robs you from your own grave. And here's, and here's what you've got to get. The whole reason that there even is a box is because of our sin. The sin is what closed the box up. The sin is what kept us from our great treasure. We, in a sense, locked him away from us. And the key that opens up the box is faith in the fact that when that nail broke through the flesh of our Savior, it broke through the flesh of our sin. And when he was struck down on that cross, our sin was struck down and destroyed. You know there's a place in the Bible where it says, Jesus, he who knew no sin, no sin at all, no sin was about him, he had no sin at all. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God, meaning we might become right before him. We might become his treasure. While he is our treasure, we are his treasure. It's faith in the fact that when that nail pierced him, it destroyed your sin. And now you have complete, full access to God, no matter what you have done, what you're doing now, and what you will do in the future. It's yours, the treasure, and it's not going anywhere. And once you realize that, you really actually realize he really is the treasure. And that box, it never opens up until you realize that he is the one who's the treasure. It's not this life that's without him. It's life that is with him. Heaven is not heaven unless he is there. And so let's go to him with faith, knowing that there's nothing we can do to get this box to open up. But it's just a complete gift. And one of the best ways, one of the best ways to declare you believe that is true is by communion. We're taking communion today. 
And when you take communion, this is you making a declaration. This is you making a statement. And we're doing it here together. We're doing it as a community. We're saying publicly, I believe this is true. That's what communion is about. And I, some of you, listen, here, here's the temptation. You say, listen, uh, I'm, I, I don't deserve communion. Well, that's the perfect time to take communion. That's what everybody's saying. Everybody that's walking to go, to go eat the bread and the cup, you know what they're saying? I don't deserve this, but it's a gift. I'm a pirate. You know, this is what's happening. So what we're going to do, it's all in the back. We're going to have two songs playing after this. And so there's plenty of time. We don't all have to get up and rush back there unless you're just like really craving it. But, um, and you want that box opened up. But listen, don't, we don't all have to run back there. Think about what he has said and let it remove the cobwebs in your heart so that you might see him as the great treasure. So your heart might think clearly about who he is. All right, let me pray for us. Father, we pray that as we take the bread and the cup, that we would take it with faith, that we've been given a great gift. We haven't earned it, but it's a gift. Help us to believe that. Pray, God, that your spirit would teach us right now what we are doing that this might not be an empty ritual, but it would be filled with meaning deep in the chambers and the halls of our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.